welcome to Organized Crime and Punishment, the best spot in town to hang out and talk about history and crime, with your hosts, Steve and Mustache Chris. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Here we are again with another Five Families in Five Episodes. I am Steve, and I'm joined by our partner in crime, Mustache Chris. Today, we are telling the story of one of the most famous or possibly infamous mafia families, the big one, the Gambino family. Of all the families, the Gambinos are likely to be the family most people are familiar with. That being said, the Gambinos have one of the most complicated histories of all the families, and they were central in some way or in some way connected to almost all of the stories that we will tell in this first season of Organized Crime and Punishment. So let's get started. Chris, just overall, what's your thought about the, the Gambino family? You know, you think of like the stereotypical mafia guy from the movie, it's like the Gambino family is what I would think of, right? Uh we're in the maybe because this is more so like John Gotti, like wearing the flashy suits and you know talking to the media and stuff like that. I don't know. Out of all the families, I say the Gambino family is probably the most fun to read about. Yeah, I think we're going to see that they're the most. I guess you might say the most varied. They're they're into the real in the in the trenches kind of crime stuff, but they're also in the highest of high finance and white collar crime. They really they they embraced all of it, the blue collar to the white collar crime. But let's go uh, and talk about the kind of the the origins. And again, we're we're going to go deep into history with this one, but we're just going to really skim over it. All of these with all of the episodes we're going to go into some deep dives into the very earliest of the mafia. But where does this Gambino family set its roots? The Gambino family can trace its origins back to the Dequila gang, which is uh, they were part of the Igno- uh which was led by, uh, sorry, Ignazio uh, Lupo, who was uh, like a newly arrived uh, Sicilian immigrant in New York who basically ran uh Little Italy, his nickname was the Wolf, right? So that kind of gives you an idea of the type of character this guy was. Yeah, but he ended up finding himself in jail uh, for had some. It was a massive uh, counterfeiting money scheme, and I think what well, eventually we're going to get into it because it involves like a very famous Italian detective. This is like the very early 
mafia history like goes all the way back to like sicily right it's a fascinating story but once uh lupo went to jail it kind of paved the way for uh salvatore uh dequila to uh take over the gang right so like the bigger gang dequila was a you know it was a good mobster he didn't waste any time like he uh formed a bunch of alliances with different gangs in new york and outside of the united states and um by the end of it, he had formed like one of the most powerful gangs in New York, really, and in the United States by extension, right? Because even at this early time, that's where all the power was, really, was in New York. You'll have like a brief respite with uh, Al Capone in Chicago, but, you know, who controls New York basically controls organized crime. Moving on to the next step, we bring in our old pal, Joe the Boss Mazzaria, who we're We'll definitely talk a lot more about him, but he's kind of the next phase. And um, I think people will be at least somewhat familiar that it seems to me, and I wonder what you think of this is like these very early mafia groups, they're like essentially like the prototypical gang of a, a, a couple of hoodlums, gangsters. They control maybe a small couple of streets, but then they become a little bit more organized and a little bit bigger with like the next step of Joe, the boss Mazaria. And then we're going to see that they even get more organized. And that seems to be kind of the theme is that it, the, the mafia becomes more and more organized with each war that comes along. Yeah, for sure. It's kind of like, kind of like how a nation forms really, right? It starts as like a tribal, maybe city state, type situation then it gets more organized and it spreads its influence and the state becomes a little bit more hierarchical and more more organized thus and in a lot of ways it's kind of how say you think of like uh, we were just talking about rome the other day it's kind of how rome started right it started also as a small city and slowly became more organized and the senate became more complicated and you know there was rigid structures were put in place it's kind of how the mob started right it, except in this case it's small street gangs of usually people that grew up together and slowly these gangs start getting bigger and bigger and bigger and the, the stakes become higher and higher and it seems that this is really the uh... You know, what I've been trying to search for, what's the Americanization of this? And that seems to be the Americanization is getting more and more organized that in Italy, I didn't don't really see much of an, an analogy of the system that got built in America with the Camorra or the Andrangheta or the, the mafia proper in Sicily. It doesn't seem to have ever had that level of cohesion like the American mafia built of these families that were all, I mean, they always were fighting with each other, but there was at least some idea that there needed to be cohesion. That seems like that's maybe what is the American spin on the mafia. Yeah, even the even the idea of uh, we've already talked about it, but the, the commission, right? Like the that was the Sicilian mafia actually kind of took that idea from the American mafia, and it worked for a little bit in Sicily. Well, when did, you know down the road, we'll actually do like a proper history on the Sicilian mafia, like in Sicily. In Sicily, it's it's I'll be completely honest with you, it's hard to get material to do a lot of, like, I've done some research, but it's surprising that m not much is actually written in English, and, you know, I'm not going to learn Sicilian anytime soon, so <laughs> it's, um, but one day we're going to, we're going to crack that open, because there's some, it's a fascinating story, really, and it's a lot different than the American Mafia. 
Now we move on, you know, just a long story short, Joe, the boss, Mazaria, he kills Dequila. And then so that leads us into the Mazaria times. But then our old pal Salvador Maranzano comes in and that leads to the Castellamarze War. Let's talk a little bit about that. Like you pointed out, like Joe Mazaria killed uh, Salvatore Dequila and... um... It basically put that at the to kind of set it up like the Joe Mazaria kind of ran what was the Morello gang. Nikwila ran like the opposing gang in New York, right? So when Joe Mazaria killed Nikwila, he basically killed his top competition, right? Um, and then that's when the the, the Marizano uh, clan comes in, and they, they become like the top competition to uh, Joe the boss. Uh, so. Yeah, the Tequila gang wasn't like really so much of a thing during the Castellamari War, but by the end of it, Vincent uh, uh, Mangano was uh, named the head of that particular gang, and then it changes its name to the the Mangano uh, family. Tell us a little bit about Vincent Mangano. He was like he was like a pretty conservative uh, element in the for the mafia, right? In a lot of ways, he was kind of like a he was kind of like a mustache peep, really, right? Uh, yeah, he didn't really get along with some of the younger guys, right? Like Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky. He was kind of um, standoffish, really. He didn't, I don't know, it was an uneasy relationship between uh, between those guys, right? Uh, as opposed to if you look at the relationship between like Lucky Luciano and even like with, with him and Joe Bonanno initially and... Joe, they all seem like they were pretty good friends. We start to get into the next phase with Albert Anastasia, and he's a wild character. When Vincent Mangana was um, named boss, he, Albert Anastasia, I think he was kind of told that Albert Anastasia was going to be the underboss of the family. And yeah, they didn't really get along all that well. Like Vincent just, you know, he didn't didn't trust him, made him feel uneasy. I mean, Albert Anastasia, he ran an organization that was called, it was literally called Murder Incorporated, right? Where their job was to just take care of people that were going to talk or, you know, hits for the other five families. And Murder Incorporated was pretty, you know, it was pretty fascinating. Like, uh, we're going to do like a deep dive on that too, right? But like the... They used a lot of like uh, they used Italians, but they used a lot of like Jewish hitmen and Irish hitmen um, to kind of give themselves a little bit of distance where it's like, oh, it's not just Italians. Like, look, <laughs> you know, it's like there's some Jews doing this, too. It's a wide variety of murderous psychos in our gang. Yeah, basically. And like Albert Anastasia is, you know, just to kind of give you an idea, like he his his nickname was Lord High Executioner. Right. This was a guy that. You'll during this series, you'll find like there's guys that do hits and it's just part of the job, right? That's the way they look. It's like a soldier, really. Like, you know, I got to kill this person. You know, it is what it is, right? Albert Anastasia actually did like enjoy torturing people and murdering people. He was a stone cold psychopath, but he was a really good earner, too. You know, uh, he basically ran the waterfront like him and his uh, him and his I believe it was his brother, basically um ran um the long oh, i said the international longshoremen's association really like well they had like high influence in it uh yeah but that's where albert made most of his money was in the uh was in the waterfront and especially at this time that's basically how everything came into the country people weren't there wasn't like big transport jets and big airport there were airports but it wasn't 
wasn't as big of a thing. Most of it was via water. The Murder, Inc., and we'll get into, like you said, a deep dive into Murder, Inc., but whenever I think about Murder, Inc., it makes me think a lot about the Gemini gang and Roy DeMeo, which will they won't come around for many years later than this. But it uh, well, we will definitely do a deep dive on the Gemini gang. It seemed to be like this, like the agglomeration of people. Albert Anastasia in the lead, who's a psycho, brings in other psychos. And it didn't really matter that they weren't necessarily Italian. Like there was Dutch Schultz. I think he was a member of Murder, Inc., and all sorts of just other psychologically very twisted people who, you know, get in these murder for hire games and they uh, just love killing people like that comes before even earning or anything like that. Like that, you see the really psycho end of crime in these guys. Well, it's, it's funny because like people get this uh, like there's a I, I, there's like this image that I, I think people get of like say somebody like Lucky Luciano who was like oh no like he wasn't like a to- he wasn't a total psychopath like he was just like trying to earn money and like look at how a you know brilliant like mob like mob guy he was I'm like Murder Incorporated was his idea from everything that I've read oh, really? so. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, it was his idea. Like, it was going to be the enforcement wing of the commission, really. And I, I mean, I get it, right? Because to, I mean, you're running like an organization whose sole purpose is to make money through illegal means. And somebody decides like they're going to talk, you know, where like regular people can just go to court, deal with their issues. These guys can't go to court, you know, be like, oh, this guy stole my heroin or the, yeah. you know, <laughs> this guy stole this illegal booze that I was selling or, you know, this prostitute ripped me off or, you know what I mean? Like, the, so they have to, uh, they have to basically enforce their own rules. And this is the way they went about it. I mean, they don't have to do the stuff like we're not going to get into all the details about, you know, stuff that Albert did, but let's just say it's, I don't know. Some of these mob guys like straddle the line between like, are they just like killers or are they like, I mean, are they serial killers or are they just soldiers? And Albert's is definitely firmly on the line of, I'd say he was, he was a serial killer. Steve here again. We are a member of the Parthenon Podcast Network featuring great shows like Josh Cohen's Eyewitness History and many other great shows. Go to Parthenon Podcast to learn more. And now, here's a quick word from our sponsors. What's the transition then between Vincent Mangano to Albert Anastasia? Well, Albert just comes to the conclusion that he's just gonna he's gonna kill Vincent and his brother. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. They never found uh Vincent Mangano. Uh Phil they did find. Um I think it was a couple of weeks later, but uh Vincent, we still don't know where his body is. We don't know for sure who killed him, to be honest with you. It was Albert, right? But yeah, we don't have to prosecute him in a court of law. We can it was a, <laughs> it was like <laughs> But like there was like a commission, uh, like the commission had a hearing about it because this is a big no, no. You can't just take out a, you know, a member of the uh, a boss, you know, let alone you can't even take out a made guy without approval, let alone a boss. So the commission has a hearing. Albert says, "I didn't do it. I didn't do it." Um, but just in case, uh, 
you know, he was trying to kill me first, but <laughs> that's what he, that's, that's his argument, right? So he was like admitting to it without actually admitting to it. And the commission just kind of went along with it. Cause like, to be quite honest with you, the majority of the people in the commission, Albert Anastasia scared the living crap out of them. I mean, he ran they knew what he was capable of because they hired him to do the jobs with in mortar incorporated right so now let's um can you just briefly tell us about albert anastasia his uh reign as boss it yeah i wasn't uh very long like frank he what he ended up how he ended up becoming boss was basically frank costello said he wanted him to be boss and i you know frank costello being a smart guy said well if i you know if i'm around this guy people aren't going to really kind of try to screw around with me too much um so yeah but albert just some people are just not meant to be in charge of things and albert's just like one of these people like he was just very bullish and the, the way he went about business like even at one point he started opening up like opposing uh casinos in cuba to like rival meyer lansky's which was just not a good idea and was basically just rubbing everybody the wrong way and acting like a like a psychopath that he was and then the commission comes to the conclusion that um you know we have to get rid of this guy right and you know he gets killed in 1957 but to be honest with you we never know who we don't know who actually killed albert i mean there's theories Joe Gallo used to tell people that he was the one who did the hit, but I'm not 100% sure he's telling the truth about that. That seems like something to brag about on the streets. Yeah, I mean, I think that would have been cool, but um, I mean, who knows? I guess he doesn't have yeah. a, a reason to lie about it necessarily. You know, you're one of the, you know, the street toughs or whatever, and you go around telling everybody like, I, you know, I'm the one that killed the, you know, the Lord High Executioner, you know, don't screw around with me. I mean, yeah. it gives you a little bit of street cred, right? And if you repeat something enough, people will be like, oh, I guess he's telling the truth about it. You know, when we have Albert Anastasia out of the way, who fills up that power vacuum? There was a kind of an, of a, an agreement with Carlo Gambino, Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky kind of Vito Genovese uh, to like get rid of Albert and then Carlo would take over, would take over the family. Carlo Gambino and this is now it becomes known as the Gambino family. And from this point on, it's going to be known as the Gambino family. It's interesting. I think I mentioned this on the last episode. At one point, it seemed like it changed. The family name changed depending on who was in charge. And then they just stopped doing it like <laughs> you know what i mean now like everyone just keeps the same name i wonder why i, I just it'd be interesting to find out why that changed that is interesting like the bananos kind of stuck early uh the columbos that one not exactly it, it seems like they kind of froze at different times costello took over and it wasn't it was still it was known as like the luciano f- uh, but for the Genovese family, it was known as the Luciano family, right? Still, right? So it wasn't known as the Costello family. And then when Vito took over as the Genovese family and just stayed that, especially named after probably one of the, probably the worst boss out of them all was Vito Genovese, right? But yeah, to get back to Carlo, takes over after Albert uh, passes away. And then he names Anello Della Croce is named as his underboss, who's... uh. That might be a mobster. I don't know if the average person would know him, but he he's quite famous himself. Yeah, he's no joke. I, if you do any reading at all into the Gambino family, Neil Della Croce is in Kez's finger in every pie. 
Well, he'd been around for he's been around he'd been around forever, right? And we're gonna get into it a little bit, but like, yeah, he was like John Gotti's mentor, and I would say Carl like G- Carlo Gambino's reign was probably one of the, if not the most successful reigns in mafia history out of all the five families really like one of the first things that he did was help get rid of Vito Genovese so that was a good thing for the moment general right we're gonna do we'll do end up probably end up doing like a dive on Vito because it is he he has a really wild so we talked a little bit about it on the Genovese uh family episode but didn't really do it justice just how crazy this guy was yeah and then like he built like a like a huge off shore casino gambling empire with Meyer Lansky uh in Cuba you know if you guys uh, are familiar with history you know that was one of the big reasons why Castro kind of came about was the mob basically took over Cuba uh and turned it to like a, a giant resort and giant casino really the min- the administration that was in charge of Cuba at the time was completely fine with this and the average Cuban was looking at this and going like what's going on? Like what's happening to our country, right? And that's how somebody, you know, maybe Castro wasn't the answer, but that's kind of how somebody like Castro comes about because there's legitimate grievances going on here. And he was also involved in discovering the plot uh, that Joe Bonanno had uh, uh, against the, uh, the, the rest of the commission. He gets, he kicks Bonanno out of the, uh, the picture. And at this point, really, Whereas the Genovese family before was probably the top dog family, the Gambino family from this point on, like, I becomes the most powerful family. It's usually like, you know, who's who's the most powerful family? Is that the Gambinos or Genovese? And they kind of they kind of trade it off, right? Nobody nobody has ever been able to really, except for for maybe a short period when everybody went to jail, where the Bonanno family was the most powerful. Um, for the vast majority of the American mafia history, it's a tie between the Gambinos and the Genovese. The Genovese were probably better earners. The Gambinos are always bigger. It also seems that this is the time period where the Gambinos, like all of these families, would have different power centers. Uh, the Bonanos, they, uh, you know, their power centers were even in Canada and other places where, it, with the, even with inside of New York City, you might have a crews operating out of Little Italy and then some out of Brooklyn, some out of the Bronx, where this, the Gambino family, their division was more between the street guys and then the white collar guys and the union guys. Like they had this high, high end kind of money making machine through the unions, through contracts, through construction. But then you also had the guys, the holdup guys and the ones just stealing truckloads of merch and stuff like that. This is like the kind of the white collar crime aspect. Well, it's always there, but like I think Carlo Gambino had a big part of t- making that much more important part of the uh, Gambino organization. Yeah. And then um joe colombo was the one that actually spoiled joe bonanno's plot so like carlo gambino ends up making him head of the colombo family which the colombo family it's not a, a satellite state of the of the gambino family but it's heavily dependent on the gambino family right even the gambinos like start working in on a, their own rackets and even at one point like carlo gambino was uh influential in naming the um one of the bosses the lucchese family didn't last very long um because he ended up uh carmine tarmu car car we talked about <laughs> carmine tarmukti he ended up getting caught up in the french connection uh 
uh, drug trafficking uh, scandal. So we're, we're, we're going to do a whole thing on the French Connection, too, down the road. But, yeah, he was only short-lived. I mean, even even in the Genovese family, Carlo Gambino uh, kind of pushed for this guy named Frank uh, Terra to uh, take over as uh, the acting boss. It just kind of shows you the amount of influence that Carlo Gambino had over the entire commission. I mean, he really was kind of the boss of bosses. He was the guy running the show. And from my understanding, Carlo was super low key. And for the most part, like he didn't want his, I th- his son, Tommy would get involved in the criminal side of things. But for the most part, I think he pushed his kids towards being completely legit. Yeah. I mean, he was, uh, I mean, if you couldn't come up with a better boss than Carlo Gambino, really like, in terms of like keeping a low key, bringing in lots of money, taking care of business that needs to get taken care of, you know, and like unlike most mobsters, he like he just he died of natural causes in 1976. He didn't die in prison. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't killed. Like pretty remarkable considering like the amount of times of these characters that we talked about, and most of the time they either end up dying in prison or they get killed themselves. Not many guys can say they just died peacefully of natural causes. No, not at all. And his, the heir to the throne, Paul Castellano, will not die of natural causes. Obviously, he passed away. He named Paul Castellano as the as the new boss of the Gambino family, which was a little shocking to a lot of uh, a lot of people in the uh, um, in the Gambino family because they uh, they just assume that Anello was going to take over the uh, position considering he was the underboss and, you know, had been working underneath Carlo Gambino this entire time. But um, that's not what happened. Like, you know, from everything I've read, that Carlo Gambino kind of felt that the Gambino family would be better served focusing more on the white collar type crimes that Paul Castellano was, uh, you know, specialized in in terms of like, you know, construction and labor racketeering and things of that nature. But what ended up happening is it effectively just kind of split the family in half, really. Like you had the white collar faction, which is, you know, Paul Castellano was in charge of. And then you have uh, the the street guys, the blue collar faction that Anello was basically uh in charge of i think with paul castellano he's in you can put him in that category of just completely greedy mobsters i have no doubt that paul castellano with his legitimate businesses probably would have made just as much money as with this mafia money but he just couldn't i think there just was never enough and i think he also liked playing mafia like being the don and all that i think he loved that part of it but i don't think his heart was really in it and i don't think that he really understood that he couldn't control these wild lions like Aniello De Croce and John Gotti. Like, I I think he thought, like, oh, I'm the Don, you know, like old school, you know, yeah. almost the, the Godfather movie syndrome with him. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a lot of how, that's kind of how the street guys felt about it. Like, in their eyes, uh, you know, Paul Castellano just didn't have any legitimacy. Um, they, in a lot of, they, uh, uh Della Croce was their boss, really. Um, that's the way they viewed it. And that's kind of how it ran. I mean, maybe maybe this is how Carlo Gambino thought this was gonna happen, where 
you know, like we're going to run the empire with like two emperors and one emperor is going to be focused on this part of the business and another emperor is going to be focused on this part of the business. But, you know, it sounds like a great idea in theory, but in practice, unless there's like somebody really remarkable overseeing the whole thing, say like somebody like a Diocletian, it usually doesn't usually doesn't work, right? Like I said, Paul, well, Paul made a huge chunk of his money was highly influential in the Concrete Club, which is something probably do a little deep dive on that, too, like throughout the series where basically all the concrete at one point that was being poured in New York, the mafia was getting a kickback on. And you couldn't like even the people that were like literally just pouring the concrete and like actually doing the work like the union uh, part of it, too. The mob controlled a lot of those unions, so to be able to get the union labor that you needed to do some of these bigger projects. I So basically every step of the way, the mob was getting a kickback, and they called it the Concrete Club because each family kind of got a little bit of a kickback out of it, right? The Gambino family was the one getting the most, right? Going back to Paul Castellano, when you have, you know, what the basically the Gambino crime family was, was a diversified company and it had different departments and you need a leader who really understands all of the the you needed somebody who understood the white collar and you needed somebody who had legitimacy on the streets. You got that in Carlo Gambino. But that type of person isn't cut from every cloth. Like, do you have the Aldi's? grocery store in in canada it's a it's a german company but that and that's neither here nor there but their their whole philosophy is that when they hire somebody like they hire managers and um they pay them top dollar but you're gonna you have to work for a certain time as a amount of time as a cashier then you have to work as a certain amount of time in the meat department a certain time working in as a stock person a certain part of the time as a janitor and then if you want to go higher up you have to work at at different parts in the corporate office and payroll and accounts receivable like the you have to have the experience and know what it's actually like to work all this job they're not just hiring a manager who you know lords it up over everybody but doesn't know how to do the job and yeah you didn't get that in paul castellano he wasn't somebody who was knocking over heads of car drivers to uh you know, stick up a uh, load of cigarettes, you know, he never sold cigarettes on the street like that just wasn't his type of thing. And I don't think he could ever talk the language of a John Gotti. Well, then when when we get into like Gotti's reign, I mean, you could argue that the problem with his reign was the reverse. The, uh... Yeah. Reverse, right? Really? Yeah. Wrap us up with uh, Paul Castellano. Castellano, he... uh he get himself gets caught up in the giant commission trial that uh, uh, that happens. We're gonna do it. We're gonna do a deep dive on this commission trial too, because it involves a lot of people like Rudy Giuliani and lawyers, and basically the entire New York mob at the time, except for uh, you know John Gotti gets spirited because he wasn't a boss. But uh, yeah, he names uh, John Gotti and uh, Thomas uh, Bellotti as the acting bosses, I guess, kind of keeping up with this separation of powers to a degree where like Thomas Bellotti was more close to Paul Castellano and John Gotti was more close to Anella Del Croce. This is like a big part of the Gambino history is the conflict uh, between Paul Castellano and John Gotti. Like John Gotti had always been a 
he always hated Paul Castle. I never liked him at all. Didn't take him very serious. And without getting too deep into John Gotti, he had like childhood friends and his brother, uh, Gene Gotti and Anthony uh, Ruggiero. They were caught up in a like a drug trafficking uh, scheme. And when we do our deep dive on Gotti, we'll get into all these characters. Uh, Ruggiero and Gotti were like best friends from growing up. It's kind of like if you watch the movie and like a like a mob movie and they're like kids and they're like oh we're gonna be best friends forever like this legitimately was the case between uh Gotti and uh Ruggiero uh Ruggiero was known as like uh he was known as quack quack because he would just wouldn't stop talking he got caught in a bug talking about uh drug trafficking and a bunch of bunch of other stuff that he shouldn't have been talked to shouldn't have been talking about Paul Castellano ends up demanding like the he wanted the transcripts to know like I want to know what these guys are actually talking about and uh Anthony said I'm not giving you anything right and then Paul Castellano threatens to uh he's going to demote John Gotti if he doesn't get these transcripts I mean in Paul Castellano's defense like I would be demanding these transcripts too you know what I mean like my name's on these tape like I'm the one in charge of the bloody family um you know like things come down they're probably going to come after me um you know but it was it was kind of at this moment like when that when that all went down where john Gotti starts coming up with like the idea like we gotta i gotta take paul castellano out and he sets up like conspiracy um group really um with a secret society within a secret society they're gonna end up they ended up calling it the fist that's pretty badass name i'm not gonna lie um but Samney the Bull and you know like Frank DeChico and uh Joseph Armon uh Monet who was I didn't realize this, but like he had he could trace his like you know his relations in the family like right back to uh the Mangano era. Um the sort of the Mangano era, which is you know, it just kind of led a little bit of credibility to what John Gotti was doing. Uh and yeah, so like uh, Anello de la Croce, he ends up dying of uh, cancer, and Paul Castellano doesn't attend the uh, the funeral, which you know sends John Gotti off. Like, how could you do this? This is your own underboss. Yada yada yada. You know, like him and uh, Gotti were uh, like Anello and Gotti were like you know really close. He was his mentor, and. I think uh, Anello was the only thing kind of holding Gotti back from actually taking out Carlo Gambino because Anello was he was still an old school mob guy, right? Like he followed the rules, right? Like he didn't like I don't think Anello was a really big fan of Paul Castellano himself, but you know Carlo Gambino, his boss, said he was the boss, and you know he followed the rules and he was the underboss, right? Um, it's interesting to think what would have happened with the Gambino family if like. Anello Della Croce was actually named boss and say Paul Castellano was the underboss. It's interesting to think about if a lot of this doesn't happen. Well, obviously, probably none of this probably happens. And maybe we're talking about a totally different history of the Gambino family. Anello dies and then Paul Castellano is caught up in this, the, the commission trial case. And he, he names Thomas Bellotti the new, the new underboss and then Thomas uh, Gambino as the new acting boss. And this just sets... This just, you know, adding fuel to the fire where Gotti's like, because even Thomas Bellotti was not a well-liked uh, individual himself. I read a little bit about him. Apparently, he was like a nuclear bomb going off or like 
like you get him like a little bit angry, like to the point where he'd just start freaking out and they would just get worse and worse and worse. And like he just wouldn't make he wasn't he wasn't a really remarkable person either. He was kind of like, I guess you would call like a, a brown noser, you know, like those type. They come to the conclusion that we got to we got to get rid of Paul and, uh, you know, John Gotti will say you can claim that his life is in danger. You know, it's it's very possible. Paul Castellano would talk about breaking up his uh, his crew and spreading it, th- spreading it throughout the family. Maybe he's trying to ice isolate Gotti and you know eventually he was going to take him out but John Gotti you know they he strikes first and on December 26 1985 they uh shoot Thomas Bellotti and Paul Castellano in front of Sparks Steakhouse which is probably probably the most famous mob hit of all time I mean it's it's definitely like top three top five Steve here again with a quick word from our sponsors yeah, I would say that. I mean, that was, I can kind of remember it when it even happened that it was huge news. I mean, that was the news. So tell us, um, you know, we can't obviously get into everything with John Gotti and we will definitely spend some time on Gotti, but give us kind of the, the brief overview of John Gotti's career as boss. There was like an internal investigation by the commission where they're like oh you know like what actually happened Gotti said he didn't have anything to do with the Castellano hit I don't think anybody actually believed that but he ended up being named the new boss of the Gambino family and uh on January 15th 1986 and he named Frank to, uh Jachico as his uh as his under boss and Ruggiero and uh, Sammy the Bull who we'll get into in a little bit uh were named as capos uh just to kind of put it in perspective, like just how much money the mob was bringing in this time. This one family alone, the Gambino family, was bringing in $500 million a year. I mean, that's just, I mean, I haven't done the research into that, but I would have to imagine that puts them in with almost any company at that time. Like Coca-Cola, or I mean, you name it, I would have to imagine. Well, and then we, when you start getting into like these guys, it's like a lot of them are just like, they're just like meatheads, you know what I mean? But they're running like this company that's worth like $500 million, you know, like we'll get into it a little bit when we uh, just talk about just overall John Gotti, like at the end of it. But I did kind of put in perspective, maybe John was a little bit over his head. <laughs> you know like in terms of running the running something that was bringing in that much revenue not everyone was happy that john Gotti was uh named boss and uh two of these gentlemen that were uh not happy was vincent the chin gigante and uh anthony corallo and they actually hired uh corallo actually contracted out a hit to get rid of Gotti to set an example because you can't just you know, what Gotti did was, it's it, it's actually funny to think about, like, in terms of just killing a boss. It's happened twice in the Gambino family, really. Like, Albert and Anastasia killed uh, Vincent, and nothing happened. Well, it happened three times, actually. Killed Vincent, nothing happened. Uh, Vincent Mangano, and then Albert was killed, you know, probably, you know, through Vito Genovese and Carlo Gambino and those guys working together and uh, hiring somebody, we don't know who. And then Paul Castellano was killed. It just came to my head right now. I can't think of another family where that three bosses were killed. And like pretty three distinct eras of the and uh, of the mafia too. Vincent wasn't happy and uh, Anthony wasn't happy. They ended up hiring uh, Vicamuzo and Gaspipe 
Casso, who we talked about on the Lucchese episode. And those guys were pretty crazy to uh, carry out a hit. It happens in uh, April 13th, 1986. A car bomb was used, and they probably would have got Gotti, to be honest with you, but he had just happened to cancel uh, some meeting that he was supposed to attend at the time, and it was only Frank DeChico, his underboss, that was in the car. He ended up getting killed. This hit is unique in the sense that like, the American Mafia was kind of never really used car bombs like in new york uh in particular like they never use car bombs because for fear of like hitting hitting innocent bystanders and drawing heat and just car bombs were no-no but in sicily it was that's just due course and like the the zips which are like newly arrived sicilian mafioso in america that's what they that's what the american counterparts would call them were zips pretty famous for using these car bombs so the gambino family wasn't sure if who did it exactly like they didn't know was it like one of the other bosses or was it these zips um so it caused like a little bit of confusion about you know exactly what happened you know imagine if you're gaudy uh you know like you just really happened happened you just canceled like a meeting and that basically saved your life yeah even like well i mean a lot of these ma guys especially later on like gaudy like found himself up on like racketeering charges and stuff like that and i'm not going to get into all the details here like when we do our deep dive on gaudy we will he paid off and intimidated the jury and this is kind of where he gets the name the teflon don because nothing sticks to him because the government keeps on trying to get things to stick and nothing ever does uh and just in general like john Gotti not being able to get convicted it was kind of like a big eyesore for the government because they they had this big commission trial where they you know they got all the bosses and you know here's Gotti. he's like the one last boss like we need to get and uh as we'll find in a little bit, they'll probably much soup to anything to get good to get gaudy. And I think they must have been starting to realize that it was whack-a-mole, that as soon as one person, they took out one person, that the next one, and that's why so much of how the government dealt with this crime, they had to really change it because you had to really root out the problem like an infection. You can't leave any infection in there. It's just going to completely explode again. And they had to find ways to really make deep cracks into the organization and really split it up. And that's one of the things that Rudy Giuliani, Giuliani did, love him or hate him, that you can't deny what he did to the mafia. You know, we'll get into the downfall of John Gotti at this point. So the FBI was able to uh, successfully uh, bug the Ravenite Social Club, which is where Gotti and his crew would hang out. Yeah, they were actually able to find like there was like a secret apartment in this club that was unless you knew about it, you wouldn't have actually been able to see it. But they I guess they ended up finding out about this and they got that's where they got the the bug put in place. And this is where Gaudi and them would discuss business because they tried bugging the the Ravenite Club, but they would the music would play. They'd play the music so loud, like you could get it bugged, but none of the conversations were useful because you couldn't really hear exactly what they were saying. Right? So, I mean, the, a lot of these mob guys will turn the radio right up. John Gaudi, they used to discuss business in this club because he was actually deaf in one year, so he he couldn't have the music turned all the way up. So they 
you just have to talk to him normal. Otherwise, he wouldn't be able to hear you. And basically through this bug, they were able to charge Gotti with four murders. And uh, they ended up getting Sammy the Bull with like racketeering. So like leading up to the trial, like Gotti was denied using his regular lawyers. The state argued that... Uh, his uh, lawyers they had previously used in, in his criminal cases were actually involved in this criminal enterprise. To be quite honest, the, the state wasn't lying about that. <laughs> it's, like it's uh, it's not a meme, right? It's an actual thing. There's mob lawyers, right? And they're basically mob. They're basically mobsters. We'll talk a little bit about that when we talk about uh, Vito Rizzuto. But they played the tapes though to Sammy the Bull, thinking. You know, like this is what Gotti was saying about you, and apparently Gotti was kind of blaming some of the murders on Samuel Bull, or he kind of pressured him into doing it. To be quite honest, maybe he he probably wasn't lying about that. You know, he talked about like you know, Sammy was dumb, and he was greedy, and yada yada yada. And Sammy listened to all these tapes, and none of which are lies, but. <laughs> It's all true. Sammy listened to these tapes and, you know, decided I'm just going to turn state witness. Right. I, I, you know, Sammy says like there was no way that they were going to win the case. And like, I don't know, even if they even if he I've read things where like Sammy came to the conclusion that like even if he got off, like he would end up having to like go on a killing spree himself just to protect himself. You know what I mean? Because everyone would have thought he was like ratted. And I don't know. It was like kind of convoluted logic for why he turned state witness. But it doesn't matter. He, he became, he turned state witness is probably the most famous, you know, mobster turncoat. I mean, I, I'm assuming a lot of people know who Sammy the Bull Gravano is, right? I mean, he is just, I think he shows how maybe that the government got too zealous and taking down John Gotti to let somebody like Sammy the Bull Gravano off basically scot-free is, I mean, that's such a miscarriage of justice. Somebody who murdered 19 people at least, I mean, you don't know with him of how much he's lying. I, I just think that that showed that the whole Sammy the Bull Gravano episode and we can, well, I'm sure we'll talk about this much more, and I'd love to hear what people out there have to say about it. I think that's maybe when the government went too far and maybe made a pact with the devil too much to take down the bigger fish. I personally, I, I think it makes them look bad, right? Like, I've listened to, you know, uh, prosecutors and FBI agents and stuff like that talk about, like, you know, Sammy was like, so amazing on the stand you know he didn't lie about his involvement in like certain things and it's like well no he kind of did he said he wasn't dealing drugs and that was a lie you know he admitted to 19 murders and it was definitely more than that um like you have a guy on stand that's like i killed 19 people but like this guy's worse like what is that like it's just crazy that's it just made it made in my opinion it just made them look uh, like craven desperate you know like we just got we have to get this last mob the big mob boss you know we got them all we got all the others we got to get this guy and he keeps on making fun of us because none of our you know none of our charges stick to him and it, it just i don't know it's it seemed really embarrassing like you know even at the time like this isn't just hindsight like people were protesting the fact that they were using samuel bull gravano as a state witness like a known murdering 
lunatic slash like drug trafficker, right? But the government denied that he was a drug. He had anything to do with drugs, which is so crazy. Yeah, it's like, a major problem. I think it's a ma- like you said, it's a huge dark stain on federal law enforcement. God, he ends up getting charged with the murder. So he ends up going to life, going to jail for life. Sam the Bull, by the end of it, only ended up serving one year. And then he was in part of the witness protection program, which he uh, didn't follow the rules in that either. And, uh, you know, surprise, surprise, years later, it was caught running a, a giant ecstasy drug trafficking ring in uh, Arizona. Oh, golly. <laughs> so- Could you imagine a career criminal? <laughs> murderer drug dealer sammy like he wrote a book too about like which is just all it's just all lies like it's i don't know the whole thing is as a whole dark stain on the american legal system in my opinion like really is really is pathetic it really is embarrassing what they had to do to get john they could have got Gotti on the numerous other things that he had been doing they just would have had to build a better case no they relied on Sammy the Bull Gravano to get John Gotti thrown in jail. Like it's just really, just doesn't, it's just really scummy. It doesn't make the government look good at all. The failure of the government's success that, and it's still what they really use today. It's the strategy of getting one person to rat on the next person higher up in the organization. And it, they really haven't changed their tune very much in the almost 30 years since Gotti and Newer criminal organizations are that's what they do is they change the way they operate. And that's why, you know, they're not having as much success with cartels and that sort of thing is because the 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 criminals have changed. The government's still trying to do the same thing that worked to take down the mafia. Well, I mean, getting the guys to ride on each other's. I mean, it's not a bad strategy, right? Or trying to get guys to turn state witness. It's like. But like, when does it become too much? Like, like Sammy the Bowl is like, like a couple football fields large too much. Do you, yeah. know, do you know what I mean? Like, like he should have been in jail for life right there with Gotti. Yeah, I think know? that that's probably the biggest thing is that Sammy should have gone down with Gotti. I mean, they were Sammy was John Gotti's right hand man. Anything that Gotti's hands were dirty on Sammy's were just as dirty. I think use the strategy of somebody gets busted with some drugs uh, on the low end, like just a user. Well, you give the user a break to get the dealer and then the dealer, you get him to get his guy. And like, but the higher you start going up the chain, the more involved everybody is. And you're not, are you really doing society and justice a service by saying that somebody who's just slightly less guilty than the next guy up gets to get a free pass? Like, no, that's not how it should work. Yeah, so, yeah, to kind of wrap it up, like, uh, uh, John Gotti's sons end up running the family for a bit. We're going to get into them later because the, the, that's a fascinating story. Uh, Gotti would die in prison in, uh, 2002. And, uh, I don't know if he exactly if he said this, but I remember reading it that he actually said this. And he said, like, in this life, you either end up in a coffin or a prison. And, that's exactly what Gotti did. Like Gotti, he never broke America. He never, you know, he signed up for this. He said, you know, I'm La Cosa Nostra. I signed up for this for life and come what may be, you know, it's either I'm going to probably end up in prison or I'm going to wind up in a coffin early. And that's what happened. He wound up in prison. I'm sure 
there was a lot of temptation to start talking, you know, like not that he was going to ever get out of prison, but he maybe could have got into a nicer prison, maybe could have got liberties in terms of like, you know, visiting family outside of prison, you know, under surveillance, obviously, but uh, he never did any of that. This is the marks the end of our five families and five episodes. And they're really the primer and the overview is a way to get your beak wet in the, um, the mafia history. Mustache Chris and I will do deep dives into many of the topics we've chatted about today, but definitely keep these five families and five episodes is your reference for future episodes. You may be listening to something in a future episode and think, oh, yeah, how did that fit in? Come back, listen to these episodes. And I think that it'll always give you a good place to set your feet into when we get into future episodes. We will definitely be holding down this corner of the Internet. So come back, listen again. If you want to reach out, email us, contact us on social media, leave a rating and review on your podcast of choice. But the biggest thing is we want to hear if you want, if there's something that you want a more specific deep dive of, definitely let us know. Really, the best thing you can do is tell your friends about this podcast so that they too can become friends of ours. Yeah. Forget about it, guys. You've been listening to Organized Crime and Punishment a history and crime podcast. To learn more about what you heard today, find links to social media, and how to support the show, go to our website, a to zhistorypage.com. Become a friend of ours by sending us an email to crime at a to zhistorypage.com. All of this and more can be found in the show notes. We'll see you next time on Organized Crime and Punishment. Forget about it. Text the word HISTORY using the code 30605 and we'll send you a link to a wonderful product that can help you finally succeed in shedding that extra weight. Jeff in Indiana lost 55 pounds with Calitrin. Lily in Tennessee shed 42 pounds. Beth is sleeping much better and her joint aches have eased up considerably. Text the word HISTORY to the code 30605 right now to see this week's special offer on Calitrin. Calitrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age. Taking Calitrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calitrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of our special offer. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word HISTORY. That's H-I-S-T-O-R-Y using the code 30605. And we'll send you a link to this special offer.